The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, June 13th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Jeff Sessions was testifying on Capitol Hill. He was asked time and time again about what President Trump told him about why he fired James Comey. And here's what Jeff Sessions said. You don't walk into any hearing or committee meeting and reveal confidential communications with the president of the United States who's entitled to receive uh, confidential communications in your best judgment about a host of issues. In Alabama, we got a little saying, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, well, by gum, it's Attorney General Jeff Sessions ducking the question. Not because of executive privilege per se, but a concept of executive privilege that says the president may one day wish to invoke executive privilege, so I'd better not spill the beans on something he'd want to be quiet about. That'd be ungentlemanly. The Democratic Senator Martin Heinrich of New Mexico was so upset he could barely contain himself. Well, he could contain himself with buckets. My understanding of the legal standard is that you either answer the question, that's the best outcome. You say, this is classified, can't answer it here. I'll answer it in closed session. That's bucket number two. Bucket number three is to say, I'm invoking executive privilege. There is no appropriateness bucket. Meaning Attorney General Jeff Sessions put himself in the ducket bucket. By the way, here's a take you won't find anywhere else. You know what? Attorney generals should not be appointed by the president. No other country does this. States generally don't do it. Alaska, Hawaii, New Hampshire, New Jersey, and Wyoming do it. Most of the other ones vote for a separate attorney general. Don't get me started on Tennessee and Maine. But we saw a downside of having a president appoint the attorney general. Same with Loretta Lynch. There are good ways to get a president to get his legal agenda through without also having the attorney general serve at his pleasure. Anyway, that's a side point. I've got a long list of constitutional reforms to get to. We got electoral college, lifetime appointments for Supreme Court justices, all states having two votes in the Senate. A lot to do. It's all for another day. I'm not going to put it all on the agenda because I know Jeff Sessions, he kind of gets flustered by that. Sir, I have just a few. Well, you minutes. let me qualify it. I, if, you, okay. if I don't qualify it, you'll accuse me of lying. So I need to be correct as best I can. I do want you to be honest. And I'm not able to uh, be rushed this fast. It makes me nervous. Now, if you thought that was awkward on the show today, we'll talk about the cabinet meeting yesterday. That was quite awkward. And speaking of awkward... We will have Ty Tashiro on with an examination of the feeling, nay, the lifestyle called awkward. Joining me now is Ty Tashiro. Am I saying that right? You're saying that right. Ty Tashiro, who is the author of Awkward, the science of why we're socially awkward and why that's awesome. Now, I have to tell you, I haven't read the book. Awkward. And also, I thought you'd be better looking. Awkward. <laughs> and when the interview started, you called me by the wrong name. Yeah, so we're, we're even, Awkward. maybe. Awkward. How's that make you feel, Ty? Awkward. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'll be honest. I have read the book, <laughs> and you're a handsome, handsome man. Well, I but appreciate that. that last thing is true. Yeah, that is true. You called me that Joe. That is true, yeah. People do it for one of three reasons. What was the reason you did it? Well, I, I think- Let's uh, explore. Let's go, let's yeah, go yeah. deep on this. Well, I think it was a memory, uh-huh. psychological memory thing. Yeah. I probably got mixed up with uh, Pesci. 
Joe Pesci. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the three reasons are Joe Pesci. There was an NPR reporter named Joe Palka, and I was on NPR for a while, and people would confuse us. And also, my dad's name is Joe Pesca, so if there are people who know me, they call me Joe. So you're comfortable with that awkward moment. I'm. This is the thing about awkward and awkwardness. I know that it exists. I've felt it. I think I probably feel it a lot less than others, and that's because I'm a real classical extrovert. And that's my first question. Is awkwardness an introversion? I know you write that there's an overlap, but just how overlapped is it? Uh, it, it's moderately overlap, but you also have awkward people who are super extroverted. Yeah, <laughs> like the kind yes. that's just like totally out of control. They don't know. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, which God bless them. But yeah, uh, so you get you get two types. They're like they, in your face with this stuff. Oh like, yeah. yeah, sometimes they're space invaders too, yeah. so they're up in there and yeah, just talking, <laughs> talking. But uh, awkward people are pretty enthusiastic. Some of them are more verbal. Yeah. about it. But most people who are awkward more so tend to be on the introverted side. Do you think of awkwardness as on a continuum with, say, social anxiety or shyness? Yeah. So shyness or introversion is more of a preference. So that means yeah, I'd rather stay at home or you know, I'd rather just have a one-on-one conversation. Uh, social anxiety is when you're nervous about an upcoming interaction. And then awkwardness is an ability, or should I say, kind of an inability or a difficulty with the actual interaction itself. In the life of uh, most people who call themselves awkward, how often is it self-realized? How often is it because, you know, other people call them awkward? Where does the uh, conception, the self-conception of awkwardness usually come from? Most socially awkward people do have some self-awareness that they're awkward. That might not come till later in grade school or junior high school, but they generally know in the big picture that they're an awkward person. Yeah, it's weird. Well, maybe uh, to me as a person who's only studied this like an anthropologist, but it's weird that it is seems to be a mix of self-awareness and lack of self-awareness. You're up in your own head a lot. That's part of awkwardness. But also to act socially awkward is often to not be aware of the effect you're having by, say, being a close talker or or looking at the wrong, quote unquote, wrong part of someone's face when trying to read an expression. Yeah, no, that's true. So awkward people are almost always trying. Like they're always trying to do the right thing. But you're right. Sometimes they're just looking at the wrong thing or just have the wrong idea about what's expected. I, it's with repeated experience and social interactions, they figure out over time how to do it and they get better at it. But it just takes them longer than the average person. What is it? What was the study that an awkward person will often or someone who's bad at uh, reading expressions will often look at the wrong, the quote unquote, wrong part of the face? They'll look at the mouth and they should be looking at the eyes. Is that right? That's right. They have these cool studies yeah. where they'll track where your pupil goes on a computer screen. And when they ask you to guess what the emotion is in a variety of portraits they're showing. What they find is most people look reflexively to the person's eyes because that's the most information-rich part of the face. Awkward people, by comparison, tend to reflexively look at the chin or the ear, which is not as much information in those parts. And that's why they oftentimes miss the thought that somebody has or misses the intention that somebody has. But for awkward people looking into the eyes, is kind of like looking into the sun for too long. It's such an intense place to get emotional cues that they'll actually look away to temper the intensity of the interaction. Mm. So it's their awkwardness that leads to an awkward interpretation. They look away and that means that they're not reading the person correctly. So can they be trained out of it? I, yeah, they, they certainly can. Uh, Should mindful, they be? Is I, this like... 
I think you know so. the deaf community not wanting cochlear implants or something. Let's yeah. celebrate our awkwardness. I mean, I guess someone could fight that battle. Yeah, <laughs> it was awkward, <laughs> but uh, it makes people uncomfortable when you have erratic eye contact. So it's worthwhile to practice it. Some mindfulness training, just general mindfulness training, can be helpful in those situations. And I think when you explain to awkward people the reason for why they need to do it. They're pretty eager to do it. So if you say, hey, you're making people uncomfortable, yeah. they'll be, oh, man, I'm, I'm really sorry. And because awkward people often like rules and clarity, and it's the lack of clarity or social rules or rules that were never explained to them that leads to some of the awkwardness. That, that's exactly right. So yeah. I sometimes liken it to a second language. So social interactions for awkward people feel like a second language where you're kind of proficient but yeah. not totally fluent. Yeah. And, and so it takes all that extra mental effort. And every now and then you're going to miss a word or misinterpret a phrase. And that could lead to some embarrassing kinds of situations. Do you think we're living in a golden age of awkwardness? Is this the best time to be awkward? I think so. Yeah. I mean, when, you know, when I was in uh, the 80s as a teenager, the worst thing you could be was a nerd. Yeah. Like, like that was the worst social group to be in. Now it's strangely kind of cool. Now you've got to admit it. Now if you're not a nerd, like all the supermodels try to pretend they were nerds back (laughs) in high school. But even, you know, NBA players wear fake glasses to try to look nerdy. (laughs) And Kanye cultivates the nerd thing, which is, you know, they'll define it as just a really deep, profound appreciation for a subject matter. But I think it's more than that. Yeah, well, I think you get a lot of affectation now. So you have like the Russell Westbrook and the really nerdy outfit. And, you know, being awkward is more than an outfit, I guess. Uh, Okay, so a lot of your book is about that, you know, the subtitle, why it's awesome. It's awesome for some fields, right? It's awesome for some pursuits. But an awkward person would be ill-suited to go to be a salesman. Would you say that's true? Uh, Probably. It's not the first choice for a lot of awkward people. Although, you know, if it's a really specified area of sales, I could see them getting pretty good at it. Yes. If awkward people have a chance to practice, they can get great at it because they oftentimes have to understand it from the ground up. Mm -hmm. It's not intuitive to them. So yeah, if they get really practiced, they can be quite good. But is practice for an awkward person practice at not making others uncomfortable like what what does practice mean what is being good at being awkward means well, you know i sometimes think that if awkward people could just skip the first five minutes of an interaction right they would be fine that's what trips them up it's those small little rules of engagement rules of social engagement that trip them up now we go by these rules of social social engagement we judge people by their smile and you know blink reactions do you think we're wrong as a species to do that no, I don't think so. It's In fact, for most of human history, our survival relied upon that. Yeah. Uh, when we were in small hunter-gatherer groups, which was 99% of human history, if you had a defector or if you had someone who was not doing their share of the work, it actually threatened the survival of everybody in the group. Uh, life expectancies were under 40 years old for most of human history. So you needed everybody on board. You needed everybody pulling the same direction just to have a chance to survive. So that's why we're so sensitive to every small little social detail. If that's true, why do you think awkwardness wasn't just uh, bred out of us? You know, is there an evolutionary advantage to awkwardness? Well, I think that's part of the awesomeness. The root of the word awkward, I think, is pretty interesting. It's an old Norse word, afugur, and it means facing a different direction. I, I think that's kind of cool because it's like it helps us understand why awkward people would miss certain social cues or a certain social context, but it also says they might be looking at something that could be really cool and kind of interesting. 
and they tend to have a sharp focus and a lot of energy for yeah. whatever it is they do see. And so that means that they'll practice a lot and they'll just toil away at something when other people had been bored long ago. They're not great across the board. They're not like a utility player, but they're great role players, great specialists. And sometimes that can be a lifesaver for a group. They're great members of an organization. They are. Yeah. I know Barack Obama had qualities likened to a Vulcan. You know, he was very logical. He's He was also one of the great politicians of our age. So is he awkward? You know, he was kind of that obsessive interest awkward. It's what right. I call an energetic awkward. Mm. So he would get really fired up about something, sometimes see it in such a sequential, logical kind of way that it could come off aloof. And early in his presidency, that got him into some trouble. Even though he's a great communicator, maybe it got in his way, his way in terms of persuasion because an awkward person probably has some hard times empathizing and putting themselves in the position that they're not in. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And sometimes it takes an awkward person a little bit longer yeah. to piece together the big picture. Now, a while ago, I said, are we in a golden age of awkwardness, meaning the awkward person is more celebrated and nerd culture is culture. I mean, what are of the 10 biggest movies, probably six were comic book movies, which as someone under 20 might not even realize was shameful, shameful <laughs> when we were kids. Right. Yeah. But um, are we also creating more awkward people is somehow our interaction with technology thrusting awkwardness upon us? Or maybe the other way to look at it is, you know, not forcing people to try to get over their awkwardness, allowing them to revel in it. The data seems to suggest that society is getting more awkward. So about 55% of people will say that social life is pretty awkward for them, which is really, I mean, surprising it's that high. But there's also been a lot of changes, I think. Uh, we're more urbanized than we used to be. So yeah. we're around strangers a lot more, even though we used to have our problems. We're a much more diverse society. And that comes with different rules then, different kinds of expectations. I think we're still stumbling, trying to figure out how to connect with people who have different cultural worldviews. I think that's all okay. I mean, I think that's all part of progress. But a lot of people will say that, in general, they feel like social life is more awkward. Well, what about diversity? On Saturday Night Live a couple of years ago, there was a skit where they asserted that awkwardness is for white people. Hey. We just received word from the crisis center that there's a white emergency in progress. Let's talk live with Trevor and Kayla Vanderkronk. Hello? Hi. Is someone there? Yes. Thank you for joining us with some very important problems. What's the situation? Well, this whole thing is a bit awkward. For those of you at home, awkward is a white paper word that can be applied to every situation. <laughs> Is there at all a racial dynamic to awkwardness, they or ethnic have, or cultural? Yeah, yeah. Well, they do have some uh, cross-cultural studies where they compare across countries, across cultures. And, and it's amazing how well it replicates across different countries. So you get about the same proportion of people, about 15% of the population, is socially awkward. Yeah. Now, the judgment upon those awkward people can vary, though. So I think we're kind of harsh sometimes on awkward people in the U.S., even though we appreciate nerd culture more and everything else. We're getting kind of judgy mm -hmm. over here. Mm -hmm. uh, there's other cultures where people are awkward and <laughs> people just kind of shrug it off. They're like, oh, that's so-and-so. He or she is quirky. Yeah. Did we treat awkwardness like we used to treat left-handedness, something to uh, be be drummed out of us? Yeah. No, yeah. definitely. Definitely. I think you still see that sometimes now. Uh, 
I, I really love it when I see parents who because you, you have private practice, right? And you uh, see, uh, I used to, yeah. yeah. So I used to see clients, and sometimes they were awkward, yeah. And you know, it's. I think you need to figure out the social situations where you're inconveniencing someone else or you're making impression that you don't want to make, and that's fair for the other person to make that judgment. Uh, but beyond that, there's some quirkiness that you don't want to beat out of yourself, really, right? Yeah, you want yeah. you want to keep those things that are unique about you. So that's a fine line to walk between trying to fit in and not losing yourself. Awkward, the science of why we're socially awkward and why that's awesome by Ty Tashiro. Thank you, Ty. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. I'm kind of weird. Take the health care bill rumored to be cooking in the Senate. I'm against it. It seems bad. It'll kick millions of people off their health care. The process seems terrible. It's not those things that annoy me the most. It's stuff like this. Where do the benefits go? They go almost entirely to the top 1%, a little bit to the top 20%. And for everybody down here at the bottom or toward wow. the bottom, you get practically zero. So, so these so, are essentially tax cuts for the rich. Yeah, Gene, Gene Robinson. That uh... was Steve Ratner talking about who would benefit from the tax cuts associated with the health care bill. And I just want to point out, I just want to scream... The reason that the rich get so much more in tax cuts is that tax cuts are usually by percentage, and that's just how percentages work. People who are millionaires who get a 5% tax cut, they get $50,000. But if you only make $100,000, damn it, you only get $5,000. It doesn't seem fair. It's just percentages. Now, they can change tax cuts so that different people at different income levels enjoy them differently. That's not really what's going on with this bill. This bill is a reversal of the ACA Obamacare, right? And Obamacare was instituted by taxing the rich. Now that Obamacare is being largely deinstituted, you give the money back to the rich. You took it from them, you give it back. It might not be appealing from a societal standpoint. We totally have an income inequality problem. That's all true. But going on and on about how it's a tax cut to the rich, yes, because taxes from the rich are what paid for this program that you're scrapping. Don't scrap the program. Why do I care about this so much, though? That's why I'm weird. I mean, that point, what Ratner's saying, it's fine that people know it. It's not exactly propaganda. It's definitely not a, a lie. It's more or less a fair point. I don't think it will convince anyone who isn't already convinced. But why do I care? So when thinking about why I cared, I was thinking about another clip that was in the news. You know, the cabinet of compliments, the armoire of adulation, the Bureau of Blandishments. They went around the room yesterday at the first cabinet meeting, and each cabinet member gave a sort of capsule review of the progress of his or her department. You got some merely factual recitations. Mr. President, it's an honor to represent the men and women of the Department of Defense. And we are grateful uh, for the sacrifices our people are making in order to strengthen our military so our diplomats always negotiate from a position of strength. That was James Mattis, SecDef. And we went to Nikki Haley at the UN. She was pretty optimistic. Thank you, Mr. President. It's a new day at the United Nations. You know, we now have a very strong voice. People know what the United States is for, they know what we're against, and they see us leading across the board. And so I think the international community knows we're back. That was all fine, but of course things got a little or a lot fulsome, noisome, gooey. Ryan's Priebus, 
We thank you for the opportunity and the blessing that you've given us to serve your agenda. Oh, right. Now, like me, you were probably informed of this via a tweet or a news item titled something like, this is an actual title, Trump has concluded his remarks by making time for each of his cabinet members around the table to heap praise on him in front of the press. And then they link to that clip of rights. Here are some other ways that uh, maybe you came across this clip. New York Times opinion. Was this Washington or Pyongyang? President Trump's cabinet lavishes praise on their dear leader. Here's foreign policy analyst Rula Jabril. After claiming he didn't pressure Comey for loyalty, Trump is now going around the table, forcing his cabinet to praise him and offer loyalty. And Applebaum. This isn't Uzbekistan. This is Pyongyang. 11 minutes of kowtowing. So then I went and watched all 11 minutes. And it was weird. It was ham-handed. Dictatorial? Yes, Trump is highly susceptible to flattery. He is a thin-skinned, shallow person. A pathetic, petty man, really. Noted. Gotcha. But from a news consumer's perspective, this thing, this spectacle, wasn't entirely devoid of value. There were those who curried favor to make an impression. There were those like Mattis who refused to kowtow, as was alleged. There were people in between. I actually learned a couple of facts, like a few of the secretaries who came back from meetings of the G7 or G20. This was a president who promised disruption. He was using an unusual and I think mostly unsuccessful way to get his message out. There was a lot of subtext there, the subtext being, my people support me. But Uzbekistan, Pyongyang, I saw references crooks and liars went right to Goebbels. Here is Robert Reich. This was a show of loyalty reminiscent of what dictators demand. Are they willing to say anything to keep their jobs? No, they're smart political operators who, A, want to do their jobs, however they define it. And some of them may be defining it in ways that we like, like Mattis, right? B, they know that having the support of the president will empower them to do their jobs. And C, they know he's an infantile president who likes to be stroked like a Maine Coon. Now, all the people I quoted are opinion columnists or political figures or sort of the opposition. There was Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer making a mocking video. It was funny. Satirists did their thing. Go satirists, go. He deserves it. But the straight-ahead press acted like this was when Trump referred to a so-called judge or when Trump alleged wiretapping. But it wasn't. Here's MSNBC's headline, Trump's first full cabinet meeting was surprisingly creepy. I have the beholder. Here's a clip from Trump's bizarre dear leader cabinet meeting today. That was Vanity Fair. Here's a Wall Street Journal writer, Rebecca Bauhaus. In first full cabinet meeting, agency heads go around the room heaping praise on Trump while camera stays fixed on Trump's reaction. It just wasn't what happened. She linked to the same video we all saw. That's not what the video showed. So, as with talking about who benefits from the health care tax cuts, the question is, why do I care? I got accused when I tweeted out some of my thoughts. I got accused of being obnoxiously counterintuitive because slate. That's not it. And I'm not worried that the press is going to be the boy who cried wolf. Not exactly that. It is because I still think that there is a real role that the mainstream media should play. And they're right to stay in the mainstream. We shouldn't believe the lie that there is no mainstream media or everyone is chosen aside. They haven't. Got to play it straight. You got to play it down the line. You got to be extremely fair. But to have everything be inflected with an anti-Trump sentiment just because you see yourself as the opposition is the wrong way to go. Think about the casual or persuadable Trump voter who might be reading or watching your news organization. 
If you went on and on about how this is a dictator and then they actually dove in and watched all 11 minutes, first of all, you'd say, wow, what civic engagement? That's exactly what we want from a viewer and a voter. And then were they to watch all 11 minutes, they'd probably say, what are you talking about, dictator? There is a risk when the media, the mainstream media, meaning Washington Post, the network, CNN, the Sunday shows, NPR, just to abdicate their time-honored tradition of proportion and accuracy. Don't jump to the harshest interpretation because that's where you think a general truth lies. If the media becomes the opposition party, it's bad for all of us. Now, when I tweeted that out, I got a couple responses. One, oh, it's too late for that. It's not. Watch every Sunday show, listen to NPR. They're still doing the job as they've always defined it. And if they call President Trump a liar in ways they didn't with his predecessors, it's because he lies a lot more. So they're being accurate. And even if Facebook or Twitter is the final delivery system of how you get the news, those news organizations I named, you know, CNN and networks and the AP, they're what is making the news. There is what defining the news. They are doing the reporting. They're extremely important. And if the original take on the news, the first thing that goes out there, like, here's the world as it happens. If that has as part of it, here's the world as it happens and Trump is insane and it shows Trump being less than insane, it's a horrible blow to credibility. It's probably also what Trump wants. Because the second response when I said, I don't think the media should be the opposition party, is a few people said, that's terrible, of course they should, then you're being sycophants. False choice. You're not either the opposition party or sycophants. We had Jeet here on the other day. His message was resist at every turn. There are protesters outside Chuck Schumer's house every day, essentially calling him a sellout. Maybe there is a figure out there who is so malevolent and so good at being malevolent, so competent, that it really should make us rethink about how we report and how we communicate the news. Trump ain't that figure. This is not sycophancy. This is dedication to our jobs. To think the media needs to be the opposition is very dramatic, but it's the wrong choice. I was reading an interview with a former intelligence official. He was talking mostly about Comey and Russia and what facts we have, but he said there is a danger to the media being the opposition party. And he talked about Chavez in Venezuela, who cultivated that, who used it as a means of polarization. And the media was so against him at every turn that when it came time to vote him out, that played to Chavez's favor, that you can't trust anything they say. They're just the people who are always against me. And then I read this in the Columbia Journalism Review. The systematic attacks on the media accomplish two things. First, they fire up the base, which believe that traditional media do not represent their interests or concerns. Second, they provoke the media itself, which feeling threatened, adopts a more oppositional posture. This in turn further fuels the polarization of which the leaders depend and paves the way for the government to introduce legal restrictions. That was written by Joel Simon, who's the executive director of the Committee to Protect Journalists. He knows of which he speaks. Doing the job, doing our job with accuracy, with the idea that even those you disagree with or even those who you have proven time and time again to be wrong or loathsome or liars or any other pejorative you could think of, going into the job, knowing that, but also thinking they should get as much fair treatment as everybody else, that is not a sign of media weakness, that is a sign of media strength. The Gist was produced by Mary Wilson and Chris Berube. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. And all of our archives can be found at slate.com slash the gist. Sign up for newsletters there also. 
Just wanted to take this opportunity, rush through the credits, to report to you that at an Uber meeting about sexism, they've been facing some horrible problems with sexism. Two members of the board got in a discussion. One was Ariana Huffington, who you know, and the other was a 74-year-old billionaire guy named David Bonderman. Ariana Huffington pointed out, I'll read her quote, there's a lot of data that shows when there's one woman on the board, it's much more likely that there will be a second woman on the board. And then Bonderman says, actually what it shows is that it's much more likely there'll be more talking. Oh, come on, David. I would just like to point out that you would think the brilliant empirical engineers at Uber, maybe not sensitive to human frailties, but they know numbers. You'd think they'd have pointed out, not that, but actually, yes, every time there's ever been a second woman on a board, there was a first woman first. That has always happened. Just wondering, wondering why that point wasn't made. I hope that helped. The gist, doing my part. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.